Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. Today we are going to talk about five easy-to-grow perennials that have extended bloom times. We also hear from Sean Olson, a retired Utah State University Extension agriculture agent on how to tell if pears are ripe. And finally, Utah State University Extension student horticulturist and intern Annie Smith talks about pear hand pies. I never thought of using pears in pie, but it works. As gardeners gain more experience, they oftentimes find that perennials, those plants that die to the ground but come back for a number of years, are very desirable because of their unique flowers or other characteristics. However, especially for the beginning gardener, a trip to a major garden center will show that even though there's a huge selection of plants, it's very difficult to know what to purchase. There are oftentimes so many options that people will just start selecting whatever looks cute or whatever's in flower. A way around this is to do research about the perennials. Unfortunately, most of us have smartphones now that we can quickly look up what a plant is all about. However, with that, our unique climate makes it hard to know that even though that perennial might do well in California or New Jersey, will it do well in Utah? Because of the wide selection available at garden centers, I'm often asked, what's my favorite perennial? Which one would I use in my yard? That's really hard to answer because there's so many beautiful perennials and they're honestly useful for different things. What I might plant also may be what you absolutely detest. And so I've put together a list of five generally easy-to-grow perennials that have longer bloom times and that thrive in most soil conditions as long as they're not drowned to death. They aren't necessarily my absolute favorites, but I find them very useful. Now, all of them are going to be relatively common because they are so easy to grow and they do give you such a show with their flowers. With that, let's get started. The first perennial on my list is Stella d'Oro daylily. Again, this one is as common as mud, but it blooms from late spring into midsummer, and if we stay a little cooler, oftentimes much longer. It has beautiful yellow or orangey yellow flowers, and it needs to be divided every three or four years. If you don't divide it, it can get a little bit big, and the number of flowers it will produce are reduced every year. It doesn't really spread all over the place like other daylilies. I've had experiences with other of its relatives that if you dig them up, you have roots everywhere and you never get rid of them. Stella d'Oro daylily doesn't do this. It maxes out about 18 inches tall and maybe a couple of feet wide. The next perennial on my list is called perennial hibiscus or dinner plate hibiscus is a local name that you might hear it called. These have been grown for a long time and the old fashioned types that were grown by grandma and grandpa and even mom and dad would bloom for around a month and they could get upwards of anywhere from six to maybe eight feet tall. Because of this, they had to be staked up, but that could be a problem if you didn't have a wide enough area or didn't want to go to the trouble of doing so. Fortunately, modern hybrids are a lot more compact, maxing out at about three to four feet high and wide, 
and many varieties are also called indeterminate. You may be familiar with this term from tomatoes, but the advantage to that is that they just keep blooming on new growth, and so you can get blossoms from mid-July almost to frost. Perennial hibiscus loves heat. They're native to the south, and there are a few species that they've hybridized together to get the indeterminate growth and the more compact size. But the take-home of that is, is that put them in an area where they're going to get a lot of heat, but that you can also water them. Another name is swamp mallow. And because of that, they're not really going to be super drought hardy, but they will survive just fine with average amounts of irrigation. One other thing about perennial hibiscus is that they don't wake up in the spring until spring is almost over. Because they love heat, you may not see anything come out of the ground until late May or early June, but when they do, they really bound out. And you can literally get six inches to a foot of growth a week while these are waking up. Perennial hibiscus are very long-lived and it's not unheard of for them to last 25 to maybe even 50 years in some situations. The next plant on my list is called agastache. It's also called hummingbird mint or sometimes anise hyssop. There are several species available in commerce, and the ones I wanted to highlight are the more sun-tolerant species like Sonora Sunset or Bubblegum. There are many more. The hummingbird mints obviously attract hummingbirds and other pollinators, but they're very fragrant. They have a licorice minty scent to the foliage, and they'll bloom from July until frost. They max out at usually two to three feet high, so they'll need a little bit of room but they love as much sun as you can give to them. Many of the species that we actually grow locally are hardy on the Wasatch Front, but are native to areas like southern New Mexico, Mexico, and Arizona. And so you need to be careful about what you plant if you live in places like Heber or Logan, because all of the species that you might find may not be cold hardy where you live. The next perennial is called Walker's Low Cat Mint. Now, there are many cat mints available, and they can get big by big, but Walker's Low stays more contained, and it just blooms and blooms once it decides to start going in late spring or early summer. It will go into late summer and sometimes even longer. It's fairly drought-hardy, like the anise hyssop, but... It has a slightly different growth rate, but it still does attract a lot of beneficial insects and pollinators in. The flower color is usually a lavender purple, and the flowers are sterile, so it's not going to spread all over your yard. The final perennial I wanted to talk about is Black-Eyed Susan. Now, there are lots and lots of Black-Eyed Susan. Some of them are annual, so they die after one year. Some of them are biannual, so they'll have a two-year life cycle, and then some of them are perennial to where they last longer than three years. The particular one I will bring up is called Gold Storm or Goldsturm. It's, even though it's a North American native, the particular variety was bred by the Dutch, hence the Dutch name of Goldsturm. I apologize if anybody speaks Dutch on my horrible pronunciation, by the way. This particular black-eyed Susan starts blooming usually in late July and blooms through July and August into September before it's done. Because of its later blooming season, when a lot of other things are finished for the year and it's just so easy to grow, it pretty much just needs to be cut back after hard frost 
It's one I would recommend if you need a taller plant in hot sun. It's relatively drought-hardy, will need to be deep-watered at least weekly, about six inches deep into the soil, but it's just a relatively carefree plant that will last for a number of years. I actually don't encourage you to just stick with these five perennials that I've mentioned, but they're great for the beginning gardener or for those that are just super confused about what to maybe use. I still encourage you to look up more details about them to be sure that they'll work for you, but most of these will work anywhere along the Wasatch Front and in our mountain valleys. Thank you again for listening. Hi, my name is Sean Olson with Utah State University Extension. Today I'd talk, like to talk a little bit about when to harvest pears. Now, if you have Asian pears like this right here, they're pretty straightforward. Just leave them on the tree till they're ripe. Go out and taste one, check the flavor and sweetness. And when they're at their peak flavor, go ahead and pick them. This tree is a Bartlett pear and they're a little bit more work to know when to, the fruit is ripe. So this pear right here is looking close to time to pick it. The fruit will turn from a real dark green color to a lighter green color. You can also cut the fruit open and look at the seed and it will be brown or black inside. The easiest thing to do is simply lift the fruit up and if it's ripe and ready to be picked, it will come right off the tree without a lot of pressure pulling on it. Using a knife and a cutting board, take a cross section of a pear and look at the seed. If it's a good dark brown or black color, that's another indicator that it's ready to be picked. And once the pears have been picked, there are several options. If you want to store them, they can be put in a refrigerator in a perforated bag, then just take a few out at a time, set on the counter, and they'll ripen up in a few days. If you want to have a whole bunch ripe at the same time so that you can bottle them, you can take the pears, put them in some kind of container, cover the container with a towel or newspaper or something. What this does is trap the ethylene gas the pears give off and they will all ripen at once and then you can process them and put them up. Pears are easy to tell when to pick if you follow these few key steps, checking the seed, lifting the fruit up and seeing if it will come off easily at the stem.
student horticulturist and intern Annie Smith has been working on a summer project where she has been identifying fresh local food and then finding easy-to-make and inexpensive recipes to use that local food. And Annie, what did you make this week? I made pear hand pies. So this is a term that I had heard before, but what's the difference between a hand pie and a regular pie? Um, hand pies are portable. <laughs> so it's just like uh, almost like a turnover. It's just a little slice of pie you can hold. They're pretty handy. They're like a calzone, but dessert. <laughs> yeah, they reminded me of the the size of the Hostess or Dolly Madison pies. Yeah. But this one, because it's not fried, is probably at least somewhat healthier. Yeah. I had never thought of using pears in a pie, but it totally worked. So why pears instead of apples? With pears, you can skip the step where you like pre-cook the filling of the pie, whereas with apples, you have to take a few minutes to simmer them. But also, I don't think pears get enough credit and they're coming on soon. So I thought it would be fun to try a dessert with them. My father-in-law has a pear tree and I'll always go downstairs and he just has an entire counters worth of pears laid out. And a lot of times it's everything you can do to give them away and things. And I thought this was a great recipe. So I actually, when I ate it, I thought I was eating apple pie, not remembering that you had brought in pears. And so it was really good and it tasted very similar. So will you go through the process of making these? So they're they're pretty easy, says me, but it's just basic pie filling so you take your fruit, cube it, um, peel it. Uh, this is about four cups of cubed pears, which is about four or five pears, depending on how big your pears are. Um, some sugar, flour, cinnamon. I put in some cloves because I like cloves. You could probably leave them out if you don't like them. Um, then some lemon zest and lemon juice. And then the dough. You were talking earlier about how you don't like making pie dough. Well, let's just say that I am an abject failure when it comes to pie dough. I like to cook a lot of things, but that has just been my thing that never works out. So I buy pie dough. (laughs) Yeah. And I think if you are one of those people, you could totally buy pre-made pie dough for this. The recipe I use is really easy and it hasn't failed me yet. It's just two and a half cups of flour, a tablespoon of sugar, teaspoon of salt, teaspoon of cinnamon, Um, I usually put in a couple drops of vanilla just for fun. And then a cup of unsalted butter and six to eight tablespoons of cold water. Just mix in all of the dry ingredients. And then with a pastry, uh, is it called a pastry cutter? I think so. Yeah, a pastry cutter. I'm a novice. (laughs) Horticulturist, not food. We're not studying food. This is not my field of expertise. Um, Pastry cutter, you just cube up your butter while it's still cold. And then you cut it into the dry ingredients until your dough forms a pebbly structure. And then once you're at that step, you add in um, some cold water, a tablespoon at a time until you get a nice dough. And then you can roll it out on a floured surface like you would, you know, just rolling (laughs) like you would. For usual. Yeah, like you would. And it's really easy. It works really well. It's flaky and buttery. I like it a lot. But again... Buy it at the store if you don't want to do that. <laughs> well, how it says when you roll it out, you're cutting circles to make your hand pies. How wide were those circles? Um, probably four inches, four to five inches. 
I was just using our Christmas sugar cookie cutter. And so just if you have a circle cookie cutter lying around, um, just cut them out to that size. And then you roll them out a little bit more after you do that so that they're more of an oval shape. Um, And then you stick in your filling, cut out a little vent for steam to get out. Um, And then you do a little egg wash on the inside so that it'll kind of glue your pie together. Then crimp it with a fork or your fingers. And then egg wash on the outside, and it's ready to go. And you're baking it and not frying it. Yes. So how long did you bake it for? I think like 20 minutes, just until the edges start turning gold. And did you have to turn them over or anything? Nope. Excellent. So not a long basing, baking time. And I had some of these, as I mentioned earlier, and they were very delicious. Yeah, they're really fun to make. And it's nice because I can... I don't know. They're easier to eat than pie. <laughs> yes, they are. And then this sounds like one that you can actually, if you have smaller children, make with them because it's not a super complicated recipe. Yeah, it was really easy. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. If you already have not, follow the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension.